It's Muppeturgy! The show that they said would never get off the ground! And we're just wild about the Gene Stapleton episode of The Muppet Show! Maybe? Hi everyone, welcome back. I don't write these intros, so I'm very curious what's in store. Uh, I'm David Levy, and here today with me are... Adam Grossworth. Michal Richardson. And Christy Bauer. David, I think it's a reference to the episode. The maybe part? Well, I mean, oh. we'll find out whether we're wild about the episode or not. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. As I think we have made abundantly clear, we are recording several episodes in advance this season. So as we are recording this, our first couple episodes have actually started to be released. And so we we do now have some corrections and additions. So going back a ways, listener John Christensen tweeted us a link to an episode of the Hanna-Barbera Happy Hour that we mentioned all the way back in the season premiere. John, thank you. You and the good people at archive.org are true American heroes. David, I know you watched this. I watched this. Did anybody else watch this? I haven't yet. You have to. It's, (laughs) I mean, we read like a a two sentence description of it on the podcast. It did not do it justice. Okay. First of all, if you are, let's say, chemically inclined, uh, this is definitely the kind of thing that would pair well with all sorts of psychedelics or hallucinogenics i don't know if i would have been able to handle it (laughs) like there's already so much happening it's just like the most it is the most 70s the most puppets the most guest stars it's just the most green screen yeah it's it's really Tommy stevens and tom bosley are involved for some reason it's there's only one episode available and honestly it's plenty i mean i would watch all i would watch as much of it as you give me so if you find more send it our way but also like it's so much <laughs> that i don't really need any more i'm making an assumption here but whatever I, I assume you think when you hear the words hannah barbera this is not it i mean yes yogi bear makes an appearance but as a costume character it it's it's just it's sort of like the banana splits in that there's like i, I don't know puppets and rock music and <laughs> sure anyway <laughs> This is not a happy hour um, podcast, but it, it really did make my weekend, and I am delighted that we have it. The link has been added to the show page for the Chris Christopherson and Rita Coolidge episode where we first talked about it. I guess I should probably put it here, too, because we just talked about it a whole lot. Anyway, in the Roy Clark episode, this is an actual correction, a pedantic correction to our own pedantry. We complained about the backstage fire plot never intersecting with Roy Clark. But in fact, there is smoke on stage at the end of his last number, and he even puts on a gas mask at the very end. It still doesn't make any sense in continuity with the actual story of the fire. So our our pedantry stands, but it's something. I think we were just so busy analyzing Sally's career that we missed it. And Sally would have put out that damn fire. All right, we're here this week to talk about Season 3, Episode 6 of The Muppet Show. It was produced the week of March 21st, 1978, and it aired in New York on October 2nd, 1978. That was number three after Roy Clark. In the news, we are heading into several weeks in our air order, uh, despite the production order and the air order not being the same, of the New York City newspaper strike that we talked about on the Roy Clark episode. So the news this week is coming again from the Chicago Tribune via ultimate70s.com. Sad for me, no scans with ads. But this is uh, this is like not 
big news, but I found it really interesting. President Carter signed legislation that will make most of the foreign embassy employees in the United States liable for some of the laws and obligations they now can ignore with impunity. For the first time, foreign embassy personnel will be liable for such things as parking tickets, leases, and bad checks in addition to damage suits. I fully thought that foreign ambassadors and such had like full legal impunity. Like, isn't that a thing on law and order all the time? I've never thought about this. No, it's like a, it's like a plot point in things. Yeah. I mean, maybe, well, first of all, so this was just for some things like parking tickets, but also maybe president Carter signed it and maybe Reagan reversed it. That's possibly true. But anyway, this is like one of those like pop culture, possible urban legend things that I have believed my whole life. And I was fascinated by the idea that it was overturned in 1978. Speaking of pop culture, urban legend things, a Bulgarian defector was found dead in his home in London three weeks after the spy style murder of fellow defector Grigory Markov, who said he was stabbed with what may have been a poison tipped umbrella on a London street. Also a real thing. Who knew? (laughs) And Americans who think they are among the world's most taxed people are wrong. (laughs) True then. That's news. Well, someone did a survey. (laughs) (laughs) On the Cashbox pop charts, Boogie Oogie Oogie is the number one song. And Grease, the movie soundtrack, is still, again, we're time traveling for many weeks, is the number one album. The number seven album is Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. The movie soundtrack, we've talked about that movie on the podcast before, so I thought it was worth mentioning. On television... No newspaper scans means no syndicated shows and no local news. Ultimate70s.com just shows the primetime network listings. So that's sad for me. But tonight's Little House on the Prairie episode was written and directed by Michael Landon, and it's called The Man Inside. Man inside of what? Well, (laughs) oh, just you wait. (laughs) Laura's seemingly innocent joke about a fat man has consequences when the man in question turns out to be the father of her best friend. Okay. <laughs> Friends, I watched it because I was real curious. <laughs> what were those consequences? Uh, so she, the daughter gets super upset. So at this point, I do not remember this. At this point, the Ingalls are living in the quote unquote big city uh, on the prairie. They, they're running a hotel. I don't remember any of this. Hmm. Mary is running the school for the blind. That I do remember because I remember right. it burning down and it has not yet burned down. So the, I must have been watching the show at this point, but I don't remember anything about like where they were and this family has just moved there and it's the daughter's first day of school and she immediately befriends laura and they're out on the street and they see her dad who is working at the blind school and which is what they call it in the show to be clear and the kids make fun of him and then laura realizes who he is but it's too late and the daughter goes home and uh, is so upset by this and is complaining to her mother. And I was like, why do we move here? I hate it here. When we lived on the farm, nobody had to see him. Oh. Right. Oh. And so he is so ashamed that he tells his family that he has gotten a job on the railroad and basically goes and moves into the attic of the school because at the school, nobody can see him. Holy shit. <laughs> Jesus Christ. And they all love him there and they're not judging him. And, so he, but I, it's also like, I don't understand how his wife and daughter never just like run into him. He's not like, he doesn't never go outside. This isn't like a hunchback of Notre Dame situation. It's very strange. And then like Laura 
apologizes, but the girl's like, I don't know what you're talking about. That wasn't my father. I don't know that man. And it like, it's super strange. And then of course it gets like incredibly melodramatic. It's, it's very well intentioned, but also fucking terrible. (laughs) And also more than anything, I just felt so bad for the actor who had to play this role, who, who was not in a fat suit. (laughs) And like, just, I, I don't know. Michael Lennon clearly meant well, and it was terrible. And I should be clear for listeners that I am fat. And my father, in fact, wrote a book called Fat Pride around this time. Like, this was a thing. So I I think that they meant well. I I don't know. It was bad. It was bad. (laughs) But I did learn that all Little House is on Peacock. And so I might go back to the beginning watch some better better episodes. Yeah, that's... I don't know if that's dangerous knowledge for you to have. But now you know. To me, Little House on the Prairie is a show that is only for days when you're homesick from school. So I don't even know what I would do with the option to watch it at any time. <laughs> I feel like it was on at like four. I, f- I feel like I watched it like after school most days. Anyway, so that happened. Um, and then the NBC movie uh, was part one of a Little Women miniseries starring Meredith Baxter as Meg, Susan Day as Joe, and Eve Plum as Beth, uh, as well as Greer Garson, Robert Young, William Shatner as, uh, as who? Uh, as pro- as Professor Bear. So that, my hmm. first thought was, Laurie, and I was like, no, wait, it's 1978. <laughs> he couldn't have been Laurie. Wow. I'm, no, but now I'm thinking about that. Yeah, he's Professor Bear. Someone named Richard Gilliland was Laurie, and I don't know who that is, but if you see him, you will recognize him if you watch any TV during this time. And also John Delancey. As Frank Vaughn, I don't remember who that is. So that's insane. And it is on YouTube, including a supercut of just Shatner's scenes for some reason. Please include that in the show. I mean, yeah, that makes I will sense. definitely include it in the show. I, I did not, I tried to watch it. I, there's a lot of narration. It is, it is not, I, I, I couldn't watch it. Google knows immediately that I want to search for William Shatner as Professor Bear. <laughs> filled the whole thing in for me. <laughs> did you just type W? Yep. I mean, I typed um, William Shatner. But. Okay, <laughs> good job. But yeah, I, but I like I want like that cast like transposed like into Greta Gerwig's version. <laughs> I don't actually because I Greta Gerwig's version is perfect. But I don't know. I talk about 1978. I'm into it. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Dean Stapleton was a comedic actress best known as television's Edith Bunker, a role for which she won three Emmy Awards. She was born Jean Murray on January 19, 1923 in Manhattan to an ad salesman and an opera singer. She had a pretty normal childhood, and after high school, she worked office jobs while studying acting at night. She adopted her mother's maiden name as her own, just as her older brother Jack had done, thinking it sounded better for the stage. Jean's career on the stage followed a familiar trajectory of honing her skills in summer stock before a series of successively larger character parts on Broadway, including memorable turns in Damn Yankees, Bells Are Ringing, and Funny Girl, playing the part that Jane Lynch is currently doing on Broadway, as well as in Rhinoceros, opposite Muppet Show guest star Zero Mostel. She began appearing in small roles on television in 1951, and she made her big screen debut in the Hollywood adaptation of Damn Yankees in 1958. The previous year, she had married William Putch, who operated the Totem Pole Playhouse in Pennsylvania. For many years, Jean would appear in shows there during the summer. They had two children who have both gone on to have careers in entertainment. 
1968, everything changed when she was cast as Edith Bunker on All in the Family, her first regular role on a series, and one that would define the rest of her career. She remained on the show for its entire 11-year run, and then guest starred in a number of episodes in the first season of the sequel series, Archie Bunker's Place. At her request, the producers killed off the character before the next season so she could finally move on to the next phase of her career. In her post-Edith Bunker life, she spent a lot of time doing interesting plays off-Broadway and getting stellar reviews. She was offered the role of Jessica Fletcher on Murder, She Wrote, but she turned it down. What a parallel universe we could have lived in. Yeah, right? The whole world would be different. As she got older, she continued to guest star on television, and she had her shot at another series opposite Whoopi Goldberg in the short-lived adaptation of Baghdad Cafe. You might also remember her popping up in You've Got Mail and Pocahontas 2, Journey to a New World. And an episode of Caroline in the City. Do that. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, you have to. Yeah, no, she she's only in one scene. She plays Caroline's aunt, and she's very funny, and she never comes back. Jim was known as a committed if not particularly outspoken feminist, and in 1977, she was one of 45 International Women's Year commissioners who convened the National Women's Conference in Houston, a federally financed gathering of 2,000 delegates from the 50 states with the purpose of helping to form national policy on women's issues, which younger listeners, and I include myself here, might only know about because it was a plot point in the 2020 miniseries Mrs. America. In 2002, she was inducted into both the American Theater Hall of Fame and the Television Hall of Fame. She died in 2013 at the age of 90. So, uh, you know, she's the kind of actress where, like, truly, Edith Bunker so overshadows everything else she's done that even though I know her from Funny Girl and Damn Yankees and Bells Are Ringing and, and whatnot, like, I had to be reminded that that was her because I just think about her as Edith Bunker. I imagine that's probably similar from the rest of you, but who has who has Gene Stapleton Thoughts, feelings, memories. My primary association for Gene Stapleton is You've Got Mail. That's one of my mom's all-time favorite movies. So I've seen it approximately 11 billion times. And she's very funny in it. What does she do in You've Got Mail? So she works at Meg Ryan's bookstore. She was her mom's best friend. Huh. She's great. She's great. She's like the surrogate mother figure. Um, but there's this whole sort of like funny gag where they think that she maybe had an affair with General Franco. <laughs> it's definitely worth revisiting You've Got Mail regardless, but, um, mm. but definitely for her. It had never occurred to me to revisit You've Got Mail, and now I'm thinking about it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, but she's great. Yeah. <laughs> we have talked a lot on this podcast about like watching a lot of these TV shows in reruns, like on you know After School Afternoons or on Nick at Night. Um, but I... I have very clear childhood memories, you know, at the same time as the first run of the Muppet show of watching three grown up shows with my parents. Uh, so, you know, also Sesame street and electric company and whatever, but, um, and those shows were star Trek, which was in reruns and syndication, but at night and, and my parents watched it, um, mash, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks and all in the family. Like we were, a big all in the family household. And I definitely also love her and you've got mail and, uh, you know, have seen her and other things, but it, it, you know, not, not only was like a, th- a thing, like my mother still calls me dingbat sometimes. Um, oh. <laughs> that was like, you know, big in my, in my household, but like it, it also holds up and it's such a good performance. 
and and I think a thing that was sort of rare for me as a child was actually to know who a Muppet Show guest was. I don't actually remember this episode at all, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I feel like watching it as a kid, I probably would have been like, oh, I know her. And I was a precocious kid who like wouldn't have been like, oh, that's Edith Bunker. I like I would have known her name too. Like I would have known she was Gene Stapleton. So I don't know. It was she was definitely a, a, a big person in my house. Yeah. And it's such a memorable performance that is so specific to her that if you see her in it, it's Edith Bunker is like Gene Stapleton squared. <laughs> so if you see Gene Stapleton, it's hard to not think, oh, that's a portion of Edith Bunker that I'm seeing. And I do think like this probably would have come later, but I feel like she is maybe a, a, a and I'm I'm make, I'm making this up, but I, I I have a hunch that she is an early person who who helped me understand acting because if you know her as Edith, and then the the first time you hear her talk normally, you know, and see her without the wig, you start to realize that Gene Stapleton and Edith Bunker are not the same person, which is not necessarily as true for everybody and it it was very true for her last week i sort of started to walk back my my grand unifying theory of the muppet show (laughs) that it's best when it's a sitcom that happens to have some sketches in it and and less good when it's a variety show and i i think i'm gonna walk back the walking back because this is not a great episode it's kind of meh it's not really a sitcom because it doesn't really have a plot (laughs) but I found all of the backstage stuff in this fairly delightful. And I feel like you could see them trying things and experimenting with, you know, something that happens backstage, having an effect on something on stage. And it was like several little bits and not a single arc, but it helped me get through what was a generally B, B minus episode. Christy, how about you? Yeah, it's fine. It's another one of those episodes that feels like a solidly constructed season one episode that they snuck into season three. So like, it's not necessarily graded on the season three curve. I don't know. There's too much casual racism and way too much Annie Sue. (laughs) Oh, so much Annie Sue. So much Annie Sue. This is one that I think I will have forgotten most of come this time next season. But, you know, it's not terrible. There's one number in it, uh, and we will get there, that is a season highlight for me. But overall, meh. Michal? Yeah, so you've just learned that I, for some reason, have a soft spot for Gene Stapleton that I just can't quite explain. (laughs) Um, And you know I love a good sing-along, so one of the songs that probably didn't make a great impression on you guys was still fun for me. And I remembered that that finale was coming, so that might have colored my perspective on the episode as a whole, because I was looking forward to it the whole time. What I'm trying to say is I enjoyed this episode perhaps more than I should have. David? I'm not sure I have an overall impression of this episode. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I, I think, I don't know. Like, it's just because because there's not really a through line, I'm having a hard time sort of bundling up my thoughts about it as an episode as opposed to my thoughts about each individual piece of it. So, I don't know, maybe at the end of this conversation, I will be able to answer this question better. But I, I certainly enjoyed it. And at the same time, the second time I watched it, there were parts that I had totally forgotten about from just a few days before. And uh, not because they were bad, because I certainly enjoyed them. I think that that speaks to it all just feeling a little bit like disconnected and, and floaty. Yeah, that feels right. Gene Stapleton? 30 seconds to curtain, Miss Stapleton. 
Thank you. Good luck, Miss Stapleton. Good luck, Miss Stapleton. Thank you. Thank you. There's just one thing I've got to remember. I am normal. Gee, you can get a grip on yourself. <laughs> so what you were hearing was a two-headed monster lady, or maybe it was just two female Muppets wearing the same dress together. <laughs> it's not explicitly stated, but they were both wishing Jean good luck. Jean tries an affirmation, putting her hands down on the table one at a time as she says, I am normal. Uh, the affirmation is to no avail because it turns out she now has three hands and at least one of them is trying to murder her. I think it's uh, two Muppets in the same dress because that dress pops up with two pigs in the at the dance. So yeah, it is the same dress. Oh, interesting. I mean, I think it's meant to be a two-headed creature, but it's like too subtle. <laughs> I mean, I, I found them very creepy. <laughs> like the like the twins from The Shining. <laughs> the they were very polite. Help. They were wishing. <laughs> I like me, Stupertin. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the effect was achieved, <laughs> whichever way you read it. But like they're shot on a diagonal. And so like I missed on my first watch that they were even in the same dress that like, cause they could have been sort of standing shoulder to shoulder and the fabric just sort of there. But then when you look again, like they're clearly in the same dress, but yeah, I found them very unsettling. <laughs> whichever, whichever joke they were going for. They were going for several jokes within 30 seconds. Yes, that too. I did like that. Um, it's one of Jean's actual hands. I mean, they're all three of them are her actual hands, but you know, one of her original hands. Wait, why do you think? Oh. What? What do you mean all three of them are her actual hands? I'm pretty sure one of them is Louise Gold's hand. <laughs> no, obviously, she has three arms. That's the point. She grew an extra arm. I see. Yes. Some people will grow extra weight for a role. Right. Jean She's Stapleton very committed. Very, yeah. But yes, I'm sure one of them is Louise Gold's arm. Well, it's one of her original hands that attacks her, and it's it's the the new one that, that tries to save her. I, I just thought that was a nice touch. That's very kind of Louise Gold or whomever, or yeah. of Jean Stapleton's additional hand that she tried to just helps to, to sell the sell the bit, I thought. Yeah, it was a, a little concerning, but fun to see. Uh, Statler and Waldorf have come prepared this week. I think we'll be entertained tonight. I will. I brought a book. <laughs> Good thinking. I tried so hard to see what the title of the book was, but it was not meant to be. <laughs> I've decided it's The Catcher in the Rye for no particular reason, except that it sort of reminded me of the edition that I had when I was a kid. Yeah, it looks like a slim volume. He only has to entertain himself for 27 minutes. Unless they do some things twice and then, you know, use the better take for television. Right. The house lights are always on in this theater. A thing I never really thought about until he's able to read. They're going for gritty Oklahoma vibe. Yeah. At the end of the theme song, Gonzo is undermined by Kermit. Gonzo rears up to blow his trumpet, but then Kermit appears behind him and blows a different trumpet before Gonzo can get there. Gonzo does a little jump. It's cute. It is cute. And you can see Dave Gold's arm, but it's uh, his sleeve is purple, which I appreciated. Well done. Yeah. You can, you can also, also see that Kermit's horn is on like a big fucking pole. <laughs> oh, I missed that. But you can also... 100% see Kermit standing behind him before the reveal. Like, it's not, it's very sloppy, but still very funny. Turns out they're puppets. Yeah. Well. 
Yeah, Muppet Show backstage. So as we mentioned, there isn't any one cohesive backstage plot this week, but there is some backstage business, uh, which we will get to. Backstage business, first of all, Gonzo's new co-stars are missing. Yeah, you see, you have to learn Spanish if you're going to train Mexican jumping beans. <laughs> uh, makes sense. Gracias. I'm going to go rehearse now. Right. Adios. What? <laughs> uh, goodbye. Ah, goodbye. Adios. Whatever. <laughs> Kermit! Look! They're gone! My Mexican jumping beans were in this dish and they're gone! Oh, well, maybe uh, somebody ate them. Eat my stars? Kermit! It wasn't you, was it? Uh, no, Gonzo, it wasn't me. So Gonzo is training some Mexican jumping beans, which we learn have been eaten by Animal. And since they are trained, now Animal does a cute little bunny hop every time somebody says Ariba for the rest of the episode. So here's the thing about Gonzo not knowing what adios means. Sesame Street has been on the air for over a decade at this point. <laughs> Kermit, his boss and close friend, is a star of Sesame Street. You cannot miss learning adios from watching Sesame Street. Has Gonzo never watched Kermit's big show? I don't know. I find that a little hard to believe. I mean, he's also busy training Mexican jumping beans and apparently waltzing walnuts. <laughs> Yeah, he says, I hope they don't eat my waltzing walnuts. And I was like, man, that's my new insult. Eat my waltzing walnuts! <laughs> it's a good, like, general um, <laughs> epithet, too. Waltzing yeah. walnuts. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Gonzo is an artiste, is what I'm it's saying. Exactly. Exactly. He doesn't have time to learn how to say goodbye. <laughs> Only interested in hello. So I was naturally concerned that this was, this was racist. And so I looked it up and learned that the Mexican jumping bean comes from the mountains in a 30 by 100 mile region of Mexico, where its host tree grows, which calls itself the jumping bean capital of the world. So not racist, actually Mexican. Mm-hmm. They're not technically beans, but spurges. I don't quite know what that is. I could have clicked the link on Wikipedia, but I didn't. A specific type of moth lays its eggs in the knot beans, which hatch into larvae. And when the bean is lightly heated, the larva moves and the bean jumps. You know, get them for your kids. Oh, I, I'd seen them before as a kid, and I always wondered how they worked. Yeah, that's that's how. So, I mean, I, you could train them, I suppose. Yeah. A spurge is a herbaceous plant or shrub with milky latex and very small, typically greenish flowers. Looks to be a creeping weed kind of situation. Yeah, but like it's specifically like a like a seed pod on the spurge, I guess. That's a poorly written sentence, Wikipedia. Anyway. You could go fix it. I'm not gonna. Uh, <laughs> Mexican jumping beans, not, not actually beans, but actually from Mexico. And actually have a living creature inside them. So sure, why not? train them gonzo go for it and eat them animal go for it well right. i know that they're super edible yeah they're not i don't think they'll <laughs> really hurt you but it, they're not you shouldn't <laughs> was my they're also not appetizing if you've ever seen them they like look like little rocks well, and if you yeah. cut cut them open they have a moth larva inside of them <laughs> not in a fun fig kind of way no. <laughs> speaking speaking of appetizing food <laughs> <laughs> Next bit of backstage business, uh, Gladys, the canteen lady or canteen being or monster or whatever she is, 
she's back and she's got somebody's lunch. Look, somebody ordered a sandwich from the canteen. Now, who was it? Oh, uh, well, I don't know. You'll have to ask around. I'm too busy. You do it. Uh, Gladys, I'm trying to put on a show. Well, big deal. <laughs> Look, I got a full grill downstairs. Got six burgers on, a couple of steaks, and two lobsters. Lobsters? Since when are they on the menu? They're not on the menu. The lobsters ordered the steak. <laughs> uh, well, well, why, why don't you just leave the sandwich? It ain't been paid for yet. Well, you can charge it to the show. What are you, nuts? Uh, she's gotten worse. <laughs> I'm enjoying her descent into whatever this is. I don't, it's not her personality that bothers me. I, I, I love her, you know, especially giving Kermit a hard time for not being able to pay. But I just, this was so much, this vocal performance. <laughs> She also enters, uh, there's that sliding panel in the in the door by Kermit's, like not his main desk. I also understand why Kermit has two desks. He's a busy frog. He is a busy frog. So he has like that, that desk that looks like a, like a writing desk or like a prompt desk actually that should be backstage, um, but whatever. So he's at that one by the door that has that sliding panel in it. And so she appears very suddenly and, and Kermit, kind of jumps because he's startled and so did I <laughs> like it was a horror movie jump scare I don't like Gladys I wouldn't want to run into her in a dark alley especially not if she's got the what was it a walnut lima bean sandwich for Gonzo next bit of backstage business uh, if there is any through line in this episode it's that Annie Sue has a lot of screen time so we're met with some Muppet melodrama preceding the Muppet melodrama sketch Annie Sue has already sung two songs today, and now Kermit is giving her a chance at her first big dramatic role to star in the Muppet melodrama, and Piggy is none too pleased, but Annie Sue is too racked by nerves to go on. Kermy, it is obvious that the child is unprofessional. <laughs> Annie Sue, go to your room. <laughs> oh, brother. But, 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 I will save the show, Kermy. The part shall be played by moi. Uh, by you, Miss Piggy? Yes. <laughs> okay. Hey, guys, tie Piggy to the railroad tracks. There's so much fun puppetry in this exchange where Miss Piggy is tapping her foot because she's so impatient with Kermit when she says she's noticed she's not in the Muppet melodrama. And she she strikes this dramatic pose when she says she will she will save the show, and it's so dramatic that she has to strike it twice. She's great. Good job, Frank Oz. Good at his job. Once again, <laughs> Frank Oz, good at this. <laughs> and once again, this episode, at least in the majority of the United States, aired before the Leo Sayer episode, so the audience still has not actually met Annie Sue, and was wondering, hey, was that Miss Piggy in a new wig and a different voice? What's happening? Yeah, I mean, like. I don't think you really need exposition to understand what's happening here, but it is weird that they gave her this whole introduction in an earlier episode in this order, but are airing them completely out of order. Well, remember they did the same thing with Scooter in season one. Yeah. This feels like even more though. Like she has been heavily featured now multiple times. I, I feel even more than Scooter has, but I mean, yeah, again, I think, I think you get it. There have been plot points that revolve around Annie Sue and Miss Piggy's feelings about her. It was different with Scooter. You could kind of infer what he's doing there. 
I think you can infer what Annie Sue is doing there. Like, I don't yeah. think their relationship is so complex that you right. need a whole backstory, like, you know, Rise of the Ingenue. It's my favorite ride in Star Wars Land. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Waltzing Walnuts, we got some music to talk about. <laughs> um, Sweet, Waltzing Walnuts. Not as much as uh, previous episodes this season. I, I wouldn't call this a music light episode, but definitely not a music heavy episode. Our opening number takes us <laughs> to a place. <laughs> it takes us to a place. Let's maybe listen to the, the introduction. Well, we like to get the show off to a great start, but having failed that, let's head for the border! The border of what? South of the border of the United States. Possibly. We know that. Possibly. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, there are a lot of options of which country we're going to south of the border. <laughs> and we're going to all of them. All- going to Saskatchewan. All right, you be the judge. When he says cuckoo, he means it's time to woo. It's tickle time for all the lovers in the block. I got a heavy date, a tater tater egg. So tickle tickle, tell me is it getting late? If I'm a time cuckoo, but if I'm late, woo woo, the one my heart is on, you may not want to wait. For the birdie and the birdie who goes nowhere. He knows that every lover's lane and out it goes. For in the throes of the heart, the tickle's gotta be smart. He knows he's getting sentimentally at the start. Oh, we hear that in the tickle, tickle, talking Because the time is right, it's great, the matter of hawking I love that now, so cuckoo, cuckoo in the clutch Tickle, 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 Original title <laughs> translates literally to Rufus Collard Sparrow in the Cornmeal. I mean, Whoa. Yeah, sure. And it, it's a song that actually sort of got its introduction as uh, an instrumental, uh, which is probably for the best, given how impossible it sounds to sing. <laughs> yep. We'll get into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, it, it gained some lyrics in the 30s and it entered the American consciousness in the 40s. Uh, it was played on the organ by Ethel Smith in a, a 1944 movie called Bathing Beauty. And uh, her version of it actually charted in 1945. It sold over 2 million copies, which is bananas. And speaking of bananas, uh, it was also sung by Carmen Miranda in uh, the 1947 movie copacabana so like which is one of her lesser films if you're curious i was actually (laughs) and you know in in my research i i encountered versions where basically the song has been recorded by anyone who's in the venn diagram of either vaguely latin or wild-fingered virtuoso phrasing yeah no and i don't necessarily mean in the middle of you know there are some i mean some are some are on one side or either but yeah versions by desi arnaz henry mancini uh the lawrence welk shows joanne castle my, my mom will appreciate that liberace lou Bega. sure what yeah <laughs> go number five <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of annie sue I and mean, this was also in the film the three caballeros like you know it, it's 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Important to remember that the forties, we had this whole crazy good neighbor policy thing going on where in order to try to prevent South America from siding with the Nazis, America just like pumped a ton of money into sending Hollywood people to all the different South American countries on like good neighbor tours to then produce Hollywood propaganda that would both pump additional money into the economies of these countries and introduce Americans to their neighbors to the South as, you know, these like beautiful, friendly, exotic allies, basically. In many ways, Carmen Miranda's whole career can be owed to this propaganda policy. That's where all the 20th Century Fox movies with her are part of that. Disney did both Saludos Amigos and Three Caballeros as part of that. Like it was a whole movement, really. And so this song and and all of those songs from that era that are like this are an outgrowth of this. And and that blending of place that happens in this rendition is really true to the era too. Like part of Kermit Miranda's shtick was being sort of like pan-South American. I don't want to say you can't blame the Muppets for not setting it specifically in Brazil, but like you sort of can't because everybody else was doing it. Well, if they're paying tribute to a certain kind of like American Hollywood production number, they're paying accurate tribute to that. Sure. Here's a question. Here's a thing that's different from Quando Lagusta, and maybe it's a reference that you know because you've seen all these movies, David. What's with the pig with the gun? You know, when they first showed him, I was like, oh, is this supposed to be like Franco's Spain? And then I was like, no, this is definitely South America. I think it's just like, you know, sort of bad stereotypes about yeah terrorists and shit. There's like this soldier pig. So there's, there's, there's two tourist-looking pigs, and one of, them, one of them is Strange Pork, and one of them is just Random Pig. And Random Pig is taking a picture, I think, of Annie Sue. And like Soldier Pig points a gun at him. Soldier Pig, the noted dance craze from 2008. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, why? I, I just have so many questions of like, why is this character in this sketch? Why is it not okay for him to take a picture? Like it just, okay. So I have two questions. When the soldier comes up to him, I think it feels threatening, but what he's actually saying is not, you can't take her picture, but like, Hey, take a picture of me. Cause then that's the next thing that happens. Oh, well, I read it as he got out of it by taking his picture. Not that it was a request, but yeah, that's a, that could the joke be. is there's a tourist there. Uh Oh, we're somewhere South of the border. We've run into a typical militia coup, right. some military thing. That's going to tell us, tell the tourist pig, don't take a picture. And then it turns out the soldier just wants a picture taken of him. Oh, yeah. It read to me as like, what if I take your picture? And then it's like, okay, well, I don't know. It doesn't matter. There's a, there's a very busy number going on at the same time. A lot happening. Yeah. Meanwhile, Annie Sue's like practically like giving the table a lap dance. Like there's there's a lot happening. That doesn't bother me. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the shtick. But like Annie Sue's diction and you said the song is hard to sing, and obviously it is. And it's, the tempo is very fast, so I don't I don't want to put this on Louise Gold, but like I thought that the show that the song was filthy, <laughs> and so so the the lyrics I went and looked at the lyrics. It she's singing about a, a cuckoo clock, which is like gonna gonna basically keep her on time for her date. And I really thought that she was saying cock. And I like multiple times. I'm like, well, that can't be right. 
or it's Kaka's and Rooster. But <laughs> she's got a date with a cuckoo cock. Well, no, but like, but then it's like, and like, and like, you could hear like the word birdie is in there. And like, again, the Muppet Show and it's birdies. And, and I was like, okay, so is it just like full of double entendre? And, and like, so she's saying clock, but we're meant to hear cock. And then I like went and read the lyrics. I'm like, nope, nope, not even a single entendre. Like, it's just, it's just, it's just that I couldn't understand the words. <laughs> Well, at all. I don't know who made the decision that Annie Sue should have sort of a Brooklyn accent if her performer is the very British Louise Gold. Like, well, I think it's just that Louise Gold can't do an American accent. But, like, why does Annie Sue need to not be British? Yeah, I don't know. But I, I assume that accent, especially in her next number, just sounds to me like somebody trying and failing to do an American accent. And Lord knows, I've listened to enough... British cast recordings of American right. musicals right. know that like this is a common right. phenomenon. It's, it's <laughs> well, Christian Bale and Newsies. One one of the I am convinced that one of the rings is, of hell is like a West End production of Guys and Dolls. Oh, <laughs> am I crazy or was that good? You're crazy. <laughs> I thought so. Good to have confirmation. <laughs> Unlike the opening number. Our first number with Gene Stapleton is nothing but delight. Musical demon sent you honey and cream and won't you play me some grass? Just change that classical dance to some sweet, beautiful dress. You will play from a copy of a two-minute chump. You'll get all my applause. And that is simply because I want to listen to rag. Come on, everybody. (laughs) I love it so much. This is Play a Simple Melody, which is an Irving Berlin song from 1914. Shout out to the public domain. Uh, It's from his very first musical, which was called Watch Your Step. And apparently it was sort of a gamble to have Tin Pan Alley composer write all of the songs in a a Broadway show at this time, which is sort of wild. You would think that, you know, it would be the other way around. Like, oh, no, the Tin Pan Alley people, you know, we we definitely want them. And it's like, no, this definitely marked a turning point in the American musical. So that's pretty cool. I looked up a little bit about the musical Watch Your Step and, and found a, a sort of interesting bit of research. Uh, a group in Boston called American Classics dug up a version of the script uh, and did a concert version in the year 2000. And uh, they, they learned a lot about it. Apparently it was a star vehicle for the dancing duo of Vernon and Irene Castle. And over time had different acts written in and out of it to fill time, including dancing children. And they found like pre-production version of the script that had suggested acts that didn't actually come to be, uh, including a lion tamer. So yeah, it was almost a Broadway show with a, a lion in it. Anyway. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. But back to the the song itself, um, it actually had a bit of a moment in the 50s. Bing and Gary Crosby with Maddie Matlock's All-Stars had a hit version of it uh, that went to number two on the Billboard charts in 1950. And in 1950, it charted three other times. There was a Joe Stafford version that went to number 18, a Georgia Gibbs and Bob Crosby version that went to number 25, and a Phil Harris version that went to number 30. Fun fact about Phil Harris, his grandmother used to be my grandparents' next door neighbor. (laughs) Yeah. 
Uh, and then in 1954, uh, the song popped up in uh, the movie There's No Business Like Show Business, starring our friend Ethel Marmon. And that movie showcases a whole bunch of Irving Berlin songs. Nifty. Yeah. It's a banger. So this kind of song, which I want to call a contrapuntal duet, but Christy may have a, a more correct term for it. No, that, that sounds right. Yeah, it's ca- counterpoint. Okay. Yeah. Where you have two different melodies that then interlock when they're sung over each other was one of Irving Berlin's specialties. And we've heard one of his most famous ones, You're Just in Love, twice already on The Muppet Show. And, and you know, he also did Old Fashioned Wedding for the 1966 revival of In and Get Your Gun. And I'm sure he had a few others that I am not remembering off the top of my head. But this is the kind of thing that, one of the kinds of things that he was very famous for. I wanted to love this number the way Christy loves it, but I feel like Gene Stapleton can sing better than she does sing in this episode. And I don't know what to do with that information. (laughs) Maybe it's just that she's older here than the stuff that I'm used to hearing her on. Like the Broadway musicals she was in were in the fifties and early sixties. And maybe her voice had just aged a little bit, but I find her like to be an unpleasant warbler and (laughs) that sort of ruins it for me. Yeah. I wondered about that because I, I'm not really familiar with her musical work but i know that she did it and this this is unpleasant (laughs) vocally i really enjoy this i found this very charming it actually didn't matter to me in the context of the muppet show that she's not a good singer but i was curious about it in the context of gene stapleton's career and i wonder if she had simply you know lost her voice at this point i mean listen she's always had a character voice but it was a more on pitch character voice uh and like a less abrasive character voice when she was younger. Although in prepping for this episode, although I did not watch Pocahontas two journey to a new world, I did listen to the one number from the soundtrack that she's featured on and she's affecting a British accent because she's playing a a British character, but there she sounds like Angela Lansbury, you know, (laughs) totally legitimate. But also I think that song is written more within the specific confines of what her voice could do with that era of her life so maybe that's it maybe she was just having an off week or maybe this was just not in a good range for her it's kind of in two ranges at once it doesn't sound like an easy song to sing necessarily even though it is a simple melody right and you know having to have it also work for Fozzie's voice because Fozzie does not sing in like the normal baritone register that the male part of this song is usually done in probably also makes it harder mm. yeah fozzy goes a little bit flat at a couple of points so if if gene stapleton is not always on pitch it they might be highlighting each other's flaws here that said i really enjoyed this number and it's a sing-along and fozzy and gene stapleton are just having such a fantastic time rocking out together while she twirls a parasol it's lovely and the sing-alongs are so much more fun in season three where there's such a fuller audience yeah yeah And there's a very charming introductory scene where she talks to the orchestra. So I had thoughts during that scene. It's so weird to me that all of the electric mayhem is in the Muppet Show Orchestra, except for Dr. Keith, because Rolf is playing the piano. But like, does that mean that everyone else is making more money than Dr. Keith? Like, why can the Muppet Show afford two pianists, but one of everyone else? Well, and who are those lobsters who are hanging out in the canteen? Are they on the crew? (laughs) I assume they were the banditos. Well, right, but what are they? They don't. They're not in the episode. Why are they there? They're hungry. They just come to eat. 
Maybe they're in the writer's room. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, fair. Mm. But it was also very funny to me to think about, you know, we've heard the band, or at least Floyd, complain in the past about having to play the square music that they have to play when they're in the Muppet Show Orchestra as opposed to being in Electric Mayhem. It was just really funny to me to think about Animal, especially in this context where he's just been all keyed up with the Mexican jumping beans, then having to just, like, do the very simple chick bum chick of this song. <laughs> like, just, like, what a waste of a drummer. <laughs> but also, like, I just, I can't imagine Animal rehearsing this. I can't imagine, like, how you even communicate to Animal that this is the style that he needs to play in and him agreeing to it. Just, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> So two things. One, I've spent the last few minutes thinking about the Muppet Show writer's room consisting of a bunch of lobsters and a hat rack. Um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Also, I have a, a quick funny story about uh, contrapuntal duets, uh, which is that uh, for... Uh, Who doesn't? Well, sure. Yeah. Everybody's got one in their back pocket for parties. So... The my go to example for one of those is All for the Best from Godspell. And when I started writing my show, The Fitzgeralds of St. Paul, there's a there is a contrapuntal duet in it. And when I sat down to write it, I had the idea for it. I was just like, I was like, I want this to be like, like All for the Best. Like, I want this to like hit like All for the Best does. And anyway, fast forward like a year and a half, and at a, a concert awards show thing that song got performed and steven schwartz was in the audience and he was sitting behind me and he leaned over and he said i loved that song and oh and i thought of course you do i was trying to be you i stole it (laughs) i mean the song doesn't actually sound like his no i know i know i've heard you know but anyway so yeah (laughs) What you were saying earlier, David, about um, Irving Berlin specializing in the contrapuntal duet, it it explains maybe why I've had this song stuck in my head all week, but with the counterpoint being many other songs that we've heard on The Muppet Show, but not what Fozzie sings here. I've had Play a Simple Melody mashed up with a dozen other things in my head all week. Yeah, I mean, part of the trick for contrapuntal duets is using not very complicated chord changes so that things fit together well. So it would make sense that numerous other things could slide into it pretty easily. Yeah. I should try playing this over four chord song and see how that goes. I think those chords are in a different order there. Anyway. Boy, that number was something else. You mean it was good? No, it was something else. And now for something else. (laughs) (laughs) Daddy wouldn't buy me a box. Daddy wouldn't buy me a bow wow. I've got a little cat and I'm very fond of that, but I'd rather have a bow wow 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 wow. I can't go on. It's humiliating to be called a bow wow. But it's only a song, Ross. I refuse to do it, Miss Oink Oink. Welcome to the UK spot, uh, where Annie Sue is singing Daddy Wouldn't Buy Me a Bow Wow. And if the title sounds vaguely familiar, it's because it came up when we discussed uh, Vesta Victoria, who uh, was the originator of the song Waiting at the Church. And also uh, the the fun fact about her was that the 
money that she made in the 1920s was squandered by handsome young men. But actually, uh, this went on to be a signature tune for a couple of people, including Mae Belfort, who was painted in 1895 by Toulouse-Lautrec singing it while holding a cat. We will have a picture in the show notes. Yeah, so Mae Belfort uh, was another wild character in the annals of Music Hall and Vaudeville. One biographer suggested that there was a double entendre in the song that audiences at the time would have picked up on because Mae Belfort was like infamously having an affair with a woman. Don't get me started. But uh, my favorite fun fact was that she also apparently had an affair with a Boer general named Ben Viljon, who she thought was going to marry her and then turned out he was already married. So she followed him all the way to Chicago so she could horsewhip him in the street. Man, are you keeping a file on all of these music hall performers so that we can write a musical about them? I was going to say, this would be such a good, like, assassin style, like, all these women meeting each other in sort of a weird, out-of-time netherworld where they can just trade stories and be badasses. Yeah, and drink absinthe and, like, six, but with more horsewhipping and... Cat holding. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I hate this. <laughs> it's excruciating. <laughs> I love Rolf being. I love Rolf. Yeah. Well, just Rolf being Rolf, like being so. No, no, but in, the, yeah, in this specifically. Yeah, like the way that, that he tries to be the trooper, but just cannot hide his contempt for this. And then there's that, like, creepy caveman pig who keeps coming out to threaten him whenever he yeah holding that hastily spray painted club yeah (laughs) this isn't new but it's very noticeable here the way that rolf reads his music like he'll play a few bars and then he'll lean forward to to read the sheet music it's very cute yeah yeah the song itself her whole demeanor i don't hate annie sue i just hate her in this episode and then to give her this song is just both these songs actually it's just cruel to Louise Gold and to the character and just no favor. It also brings into stark relief what an actual star piggy is. Yeah. Although here's a weird thing. Here's a weird compliment, a backhanded compliment I'm going to give it. I remember saying a few weeks ago that like any Sue wasn't reading as a young ingenue. And that was like partly a styling thing. And I'm, I'm not sure if the styling has changed, but this number in particular is selling the young ingenue thing. She's worn that sweater before. Yeah, she definitely has. But even Tico, like maybe her being sort of like lost in, in Tico, like being bad at it helps sell the idea that she's not Miss Piggy. I don't know. I'm reaching. Would it have felt more satisfying if they hung more of a lantern on this through line in the episode because miss piggy doesn't get upset that annie sue has already sung two numbers miss piggy gets upset that annie sue is going to be in the melodrama right it's weird like piggy should be upset that annie sue is doing tico tico yeah or if she were like piggy's understudy which is also like i wouldn't like that storyline because you know understudies are talented and usually very prepared and very good but like if if it were that like she had to go on and she wasn't up to it I would believe all these choices much more instead of her just being bad. Miss Piggy would never let an understudy go on like over her dead body. Right. Fair point. Well, our closing number 
was a real blast. Oh. <laughs> Did somebody say blast? I'm just wild about Harry. Fill me with ecstasy. He's <laughs> just like chocolate candy. Oh, and just like honey from the bee. I'm just wild about Harry. Yep, this is I'm Just Wild About Harry, which is uh, a song from 1921. Wow, every single song in this episode is in the public domain. Wow. Yeah. Super duper shout out. Yeah. This one has lyrics by Noble Sissel and music by UB Blake. Uh, it's from a Broadway show called Shuffle Along. And I'm Just Wild About Harry was the most popular number from that show, which was the first financially successful Broadway show to have African-American writers and an African-American cast. And it's a standard. It pops up in a lot of cartoons for some reason. My uh, association with it was Michigan J. Frog song. (laughs) And yeah, it it also was used by Harry Truman as his campaign song when he ran for president in 1948, uh, which led to some of his detractors to joke, I'm just mild about Harry. (laughs) Nah. Yeah. And yeah, it's... Jean Stapleton singing about her love for Crazy Harry. In fact, she requested that she do a number with Crazy Harry. Kermit, could I see you for a minute? Oh, sure, Jean. It's about this next number. I really would rather not do it. What, you mean the number with the pigs dressed as pirates and the chickens playing bagpipes and you're dancing with a seven-foot doorknob? It's just one cliche after another. So in lieu of of cliches, she wanted to sing with her favorite Muppet, Crazy Harry. Sure. Although I would love to know what the number with the doorknob would have been. That's of all the nouns (laughs) they could have chosen. (laughs) Real out of thin air. Yeah. I'm wild about this number. It's a blast. It's a banger. It's all those things. I was confused about the set. Because it's this weird combination of, like, Roman columns and then, like, mad scientist gear. There's, like, all these... steampunk shit. Yeah, like, all these machines in the back, but then all these columns in the front. The columns look great when they blow up. I just didn't know what all the machines were doing. It's the explodophone. I guess. The whole set is the instrument? Yeah, I think the the whole set is is the explodophone, because the whole thing is exploding. I guess that makes sense. It doesn't make sense as to why it. it looks like that, but that's, I think it was probably just a practical issue of needing space for her to dance around and be safe. Right. I just don't know why it wasn't just Roman columns. Like the machines are all towards the back and don't do anything. So like, was it just, Oh, we happen to have all this shit lying around. Let's put it behind the Roman columns. I don't know. It just didn't. Someone had to make an active choice. And I don't understand their motivation of making that choice. The stuff for me sort of sells the idea that it's a machine that he made and that he's controlling it weirdly, like the, the sort of laboratory looking stuff. The weirder choice for me is, is actually the, the columns. Like if it looked more steampunky. Right. Like if it was all one or all the other, yeah. I would have no question. If you Google explode a phone, <laughs> Google says showing results for explode phone. 
Ring, ring, How ring, to survive ring. an exploding phone. Explode a phone. Sounds more productive. Why would I need to survive that? <laughs> Does that happen a lot? Uh, when I Google explode a phone, I get hackaday.io where someone is actually trying to build one. Huh. I will drop that link in our show notes. There you go. I think this set is a delight. I, it it does feel very random and like they had stuff lying around, but it also feels like Crazy Harry found this stuff lying around and built it into an explodophone. Yeah. And right. I'm fine with it. I didn't spend too much time contemplating the set because I was too entranced by Crazy Harry's like arm shimmy dance in the background. It's mm-hmm. real cute. Yeah. He is feeling himself. This is the most Crazy Harry's ever spoken, I think, and I didn't care for it. Yeah, when he says it's a musical number, it's uh, something's happening there. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm concerned about his capacity. <laughs> but Jean Stapleton is wild about him, and it shows in so many ways. She's just enjoying the explosions so deeply, and she keeps like running back over to him and like scratching him under the chin. It's very cute. Never mind that jazz. Listen, turkey. What? And get out of show business. So in our show business this week, we have an at the dance sketch and we have to talk about a couple of the dancers, I think, including oh, yeah. Dr. Buns and Honeydew, who lacks eyeballs in case you were not aware. He has glasses. A couple of times this episode, he lifts up the glasses as though that's going to help him see better. <laughs> and that's when you notice he doesn't have eyeballs. Uh, today, they're playing this for laughs. He's dancing with a lady who has no mouth. Uh, Bunsen observes twice that his partner doesn't seem to have much to say and then titters at his own joke. Uh, I don't understand that. You have to think about it. Also, Kermit's dancing with Miss Mousy. I hate everything about this. I, I find the mouthless puppet is very creepy. And why, like, why is he like, oh, you don't have very much to say. She doesn't have a mouth. And you're one to talk. You don't have any eyes. <laughs> and what a weird choice to have it be Bunsen. And... Like, why doesn't Kermit understand it? There's nothing to understand. She doesn't have a mouth, so she can't speak. Kermit has never noticed that Bunsen doesn't have eyeballs. <laughs> he entrusted him with this but science is lab. The, is that the joke? Isn't the joke just that she doesn't have a mouth? And so That's she can't the whole speak? joke. Yes. Kermit's got to think about it, though. It could be a double joke. But 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 also, no, Miss Mousy, you don't have to think about it. There's literally nothing to think about. I hate, I just it, <laughs> I did not like it. Justice for Miss Mousy. Give her a fucking costume. Why is she still in her nightgown? <laughs> don't understand. I'm mad. She's a never not nightgown. I mean, I'm glad she's comfortable. I am. But it's the 70s. They could give her some sort of glam muumuu caftan situation and she could still be comfortable <laughs> and not look like she doesn't belong at the dance. Uh, we alluded earlier to a possibly two-headed pig there's a pig dancing cheek to cheek to cheek with two other pigs or one pig with two heads. And I, as with the whatnots in the opening did not clock this as a two headed pig. And I just thought, Oh, how progressive there's a throuple at, at the dance. <laughs> like, I just thought that was, and again, I was like, where's the joke? It's a throuple. How nice for them. Just it was the seventies completely missed that it was meant to be a two headed pig monster. Or just two different pigs wearing the same Laura Ashley dress. Or, or that. They're very close. That sounds like the name of an off-Broadway play. Next season at MTC Stage 2. So we recently noticed uh, a new dancer on the at the dance floor. 
there's this pink rhino shaped lady dancer. It's not exactly a rhino. Anyway, her name is Letitia and her leg just comes off for no apparent reason. And she and her dance partner fall over. (laughs) That's the joke. Say, are you pulling my leg? No, why? It just dropped off. (laughs) I don't get that either. Again, Kermit, what is to get? Why are you you stupid this week? I mean, I don't really get it either. Well, because it's not a joke. It's just their leg fell. I don't look at it. I love this puppet. I love it. I love it. I love it. Weird tutu dress. It sounds like a joke that a five-year-old would come up with. Like, I went to Chuck E. Cheese, and then my leg fell off. Everything about this confused me. I'm with Kermit. (laughs) No, I mean, I am too. I just like, but like, there's nothing to get. It's just like, why, why does she have a horn in her face? Why is she wearing a tutu? Does, why is it her leg that fell off? Why was she in the background last week? Totally unremarked upon. (laughs) I I wonder, so last week I noticed a, a, a funny looking whatnot in the stands at the joust. And this week that puppet is the waiter in this scene. Um, And this week I thought he was very cute. I mean, still weird looking, but cute. I wonder if they shot like a whole sequence of at the dance all at once. And also if, you know, if like the same couple of whatnots were around and like, Oh, you can throw the, you know, Jeff's costume on over the suit. Doesn't matter. And, and oh, I'm sure that's what happened. Yeah. But like the fucking rhinoceros lady in a tutu sticks out in a way that random whatnot dancers does not. Sure. It's very distinct. But it does sort of help like populate the world. Like if she were just a one off, it would be even weirder. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. This is just what's going on at the Muppet Theater. There's a sort of rhino sort of whatnot lady. And there are some lobster banditos in the canteen. I like her. I don't like the joke, but I like her. <laughs> so after all these jokes that we've had to think about or don't get, let's go for some low-hanging fruit. Wait a minute. You've got a fish sticking out of your ear. Yes, it's my herring aid. <laughs> Transistorized? No, marinated. <laughs> I do like that delivery. Hey, Adam, ask me why that whatnot stuck a fish in his ear. Why that whatnot stuck a fish in his ear? Oh, just for the halibut. Sam the Eagle hopes that Jean is surviving her ordeal on this unsavory program. Jean assures him she's having a lovely time, but she has one question. Speaking of language, can I ask you a question about the Swedish chef? The Swedish chef? (laughs) What about him? Well, you all know around here that he doesn't speak real Swedish. He what? No, he doesn't. He, uh, send in the chef! Send in the chef! Imagine. All these years, you mean he has been speaking muck Swedish? Well, don't, don't be too hard on him. <laughs> Her question was really more of a comment. <laughs> uh, anyway, it turns out that Jean once took a correspondence course in mock Swedish. Well, you tell him that this must end! He must stop speaking mock Swedish and speak honestly and normally. (laughs) 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 (laughs)
I think her mock Swedish is yeah, sweet. Her mock Swedish. It sounds to me like one of Charlie Brown's teachers, but it's weird how bad it is. He's right there, like to copy. She's doing her best. And she succeeds in getting the chef to admit the error of his ways, uh, which results in a joke that is definitely racist and we're not going to play a clip of. It's weird because in theory, mock Japanese should be no more or less offensive than mock Swedish. But it definitely is, right? Well, you know why. I do know why. Um, And also there are hand gestures that go with it, which do not help. Yep. Swedes were slash are offended by the chef, though, right? I sort of like that they were like nodding to that. And yeah, this was a whole thing for 70s variety shows because there's this one Carol Burnett sketch where it's Harvey Corman and Tim Conway on a submarine speaking mock Japanese the entire sketch. And it is rough. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's the thing, right? There's a whole history of yellow face yeah. that informs the accent and the fake words and the couple of real words that sneak in there and, and it just makes it so not okay. Um, though weirdly, this episode does not have a content warning of any kind. I can imagine that there was a meeting when they decided to put the Muppet Show on Disney Plus where they first came with a list of everything in the whole series that might require a content warning and then they bargained down about how many they thought they could rightfully put on before it felt like maybe this show is just too racist. Why are we doing it at all? And then bargain down which ones maybe don't need that content warning after all. Yeah, there are those little ones, though, right? There's those, those little ones that they put up in the corner for right. like smoking and stuff, and it, it didn't even have one of those. Yeah, right. we've speculated before about whether there was some kind of point system yeah. And this maybe got half a point. Yeah, I feel like it's it's sort of short enough and contextualized in a way that sort of makes it, you know, slightly less not okay. <laughs> I don't want to say it's okay because it's not. Yeah. All right. Let's 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 wrap this up. So let's talk about the Muppet melodrama. Uh, when we last left our heroine, Miss Piggy, she was being tied to the railroad tracks. And now here she is. Uncle Deadly is looming menacingly over Miss Piggy, tied to the railroad tracks. Fortunately, her hero, Wayne, arrives to rescue her. Unfortunately, Wayne and Uncle Deadly grew up in the same Swamp Scout troop. You were in the Junior Swamp Scouts, too? Troop 37? Troop 37? Junior Swamp Scouts never blue. A Junior Swamp Scout's always true. Always ready to save the day. We're We're Junior junior Swamp swamp Scouts. Scouts. Hooray! Hooray! (laughs) I don't believe this. Uh Uh-oh. You got the double sheep's head wrong. It goes like this. You'll suffer for this, guys. (laughs) Remember? (laughs) So Wayne and Uncle Deadly wander off, probably to practice tying knots around each other or something. And then the train approaches, or at least the light from the train. And Miss Piggy just uproots a whole section of railroad track by brute force and marches backstage with it still tied to her and smacks Kermit around with it. I mean, to be fair. To be fair. Kermit warned her. He did not want to put her in this sketch. And look what happened. Yeah, it doesn't turn out great. 
these melodrama sketches raise the same question I often have about pigs in space about like what's real and what's a sketch. Like, is this whole thing the sketch? Is Piggy actually in danger of getting run over by a train? Yeah, the line is kind of blurry on The Muppet Show. Is there some other script that's meant to happen, but Wayne and Deadly have gone off of it? Is the train hurtling towards the audience? Right. (laughs) I mean, Kermit apologizes to Piggy and says he didn't know that sketch would get so out of control. So presumably they went off script and maybe Wayne was supposed to rescue her. Also, when when Piggy says, where is my hero? And Wayne appears, she seems surprised to see him. And the the Swamp Scouts thing makes me wonder whether Kermit actually intended to star in the sketch opposite Annie Sue. Oh, that's an interesting theory. I did wonder about Swamp Scouts. It does seem very frog-like, very amphibian. Yeah. I went right to Swamp Scout, Massachusetts, but... (laughs) Maybe one of the lobsters in the writer's room was from there. (laughs) Very plausible. Anyway, here's Muppet Labs. (laughs) Beaker starts off the sketch looking incredibly, sweetly, adorably bored, like nothing interesting has happened to him all day or all month. Uh, But not for long. What you wish for. Yeah. Many people suffer the embarrassment of being ridiculously tall and spindly. Isn't that right, Beaker? (laughs) But now comes the honeydew shrinking pill. Take one, Beaker. Not the whole bottle. It's funny how Beaker will fit whatever problem Bunsen is trying to solve. Because he's also referred to Beaker as short and stubby and in need of a growth pill. Beaker's intelligence also really comes (laughs) and goes. Right? Because, you know, sometimes he's like, absolutely not. I want nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm. And you'd think that he would know to not take the whole bottle. Yeah, that was a little out of character. Anyway, Baker shrinks down. <laughs> That's the end. And then Bunsen does a little wiggle. I think we're, we're meant to think that tiny shrunken Beaker is sending a chill up, up, up Bunsen's spine. I like that last number. What did you like about it? It was the last number. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppet Turkey. Tune in next week to hear our discussion of the Alice Cooper episode of The Muppet Show. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at MuppetTurgy or on the web at MuppetTurgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word with a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christian Bauer. Our show logo was created by Tom Ryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. Eh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, if anyone fact-checks me on that, good for them. <laughs>